Welcome to Musicians vs. the World. In today's episode, we're going to talk about a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. We're going to be talking about injury and identity and how it relates to musicians. And to talk with me about this very, very important topic today, we have Colin Williams. And I'm so pleased to have him here. He is currently serving as Associate Principal Trombone in the New York Philharmonic. So Colin, thank you so much for being here with me today. Great. Thank you for having me. I'd love to get a little bit of background about you, a little bit about your history. Um, So you're in New York right now. And before that, you were down in my neck of the woods in Atlanta, serving as principal trombone down there. What exactly is the role as a principal or associate principal in a orchestra? It's funny because for the first 15 years of of my career, I was actually in San Antonio for three years, even before I went to Atlanta, Mm -hmm. also playing principal trombone. Um, And so that was my initial sort of uh, entry point into the orchestral world. And generally speaking, if you're the, the principal of a section in the sort of orchestral hierarchy that, that exists, you know, it's your responsibility uh, to sort of be the, uh, the artistic liaison uh, for the section, you know, t- uh, between you and, and um, some of the other sections. A lot of times uh, music directors will oftentimes um, if they have concerns about the section, they like to use the principal player of that section as sort of the, the uh, liaison to express their concerns and to, to get things done. Also, as a principal player, you're sort of, um, you know, you're playing the first part. So generally speaking, more of the, the soloistic kind of stuff will, will happen over in those kinds of parts. And so you're also kind of expected to be uh, an artistic leader um, in that sense. Um, it doesn't mean that that if you're in the section that you don't also have those responsibilities. This is a sort of funny thing about the orchestral hierarchy um, that I think sometimes can get a little bit out of control in our own sort of orchestral culture. In an ideal world, I feel like a principal is just, you know, you're playing the first parts, you're someone with high artistic integrity, and you you deliver and you help coordinate with your section and help everyone bring out their best playing and feel that they're valued and are great colleagues. To me, that's sort of the ideal for, for an, a principal player, mm-hmm. you know, someone who is, is humble, but always delivers, who inspires confidence and um, uh, inspires the desire to participate um, and to make music together. To me, that's like the ideal. And honestly, even in my own orchestra, you know, I'm so lucky I have two great colleagues who fill that role. I mean, uh, Joe Alessi, uh, but also Chris Martin over in Trumpet. So in my little circle, I feel very fortunate to have some some colleagues who fulfill those kinds of, of ideals as it comes to being a principal player. Um, when it comes to being an associate, generally speaking, in an orchestra like the Philharmonic, uh, <laughs> in normal times, we do a lot of concerts. We're doing a lot of different repertoire. You know, it can be very taxing. To, for a principal player to have to play every piece of every concert. You know, you can actually kind of wear yourself out. You can uh, have fatigue or, uh, you know, repetitive use-related injuries, depending on, um, you know, what section you're in. So the associate is basically entrusted with the responsibility to be the principal when the principal player is not there. But also within the way it works in our section, I also play second trombone sometimes. Sometimes I play bass trombone. Sometimes I play alto trombone. Sometimes I play euphonium. Sometimes so I'm like the the catch-all in the, in the Philharmonic, which has actually been kind of a fun thing for this job is to learn all these other different instruments and different roles. And um, that actually has, I think, come back and sort of better informed the way that I think about the way that I perform my principal duties. Because now I also have a better understanding of, okay, when I play second, this is what I need for information 
from the principal. When I'm playing bass trombone, right. this is how I best bridge the gap down to um, our grade tuba player, Alan Bear. You know, there's like all these different things that come in there. Uh, having had all this experience now for the past, you know, seven, eight years of doing all these different roles, it I think it's actually helped me to, um, uh, you know, sort of sharpen my focus as to how to be a better principal when I do sit in that chair. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Was that difficult to learn all of those different instruments? Well, yeah, we you know when I got the job in the Philharmonic, I did not play bass trombone. I knew it was part of the responsibilities of the job, um, but I was like, <laughs> no, I'm going to cross that bridge when I come to it. Um, <laughs> and and so when I started, I was like, God, I, okay, I got I have to go out and buy a bass trombone. Um, here we go. I'm going to go to Boston and find a bass trombone and uh, at the Shires Factory because the, the instrument uh, manufacturer that I play. Um, and uh, <laughs> then I got to find a mouthpiece. And the guy, the the section, uh, Joe and David and, and George, uh, they were very merciful to me. They gave me a few <laughs> months to like really settle in, and um, they started me off kind of gentle, um, uh, you know, nothing too crazy. Um, and then I just had to sort of sit down and trust myself to figure it out. Same thing with the euphonium. I had some euphonium chops, but not a lot. Um, and same thing with the bass trumpet. I've done some stuff. My valve work is really like not the most spectacular thing on the planet. So, you know, Rite of Spring comes along or we did a uh, third act of Valkyrie at one point, um, you know, where I did uh, some bass trumpet work. Um, gosh, uh, Shostakovich, like Age of Gold Suite, which has this huge euphonium solo that I had never heard of before. Mm -hmm. So all these things are just like, wow, it completely had to be mindful of how I'm putting my, uh, you know, my chops together. It wasn't just, you know, play the tenor trombone and do some alto trombone. It was like, no, I've got to figure out a system for like five different instruments now. So... <laughs> It was a little crazy. Oh my goodness. So they didn't give you any huge euphonium solos your first year then? Maybe not my first year, but the second year was probably one of the biggest oh. solos <laughs> that's out there for the orchestral orchestral rep. <laughs> I bought a I bought a new euphonium specifically because of that solo being on the on the really? on the docket. So Yeah. And I don't think I was tenured yet. So it was like, yeah, I really don't want to drop the ball on this. Right. <laughs> so you were mentioning in normal years. Um, so the Philharmonic is it's opening its 21-22 season. How is that coming back after COVID? Yeah, you know, we we have been doing projects off and on um, since January. Mm -hmm. um, the first project back was actually really bizarre. You know, we're all, you know, masked 12 feet apart, doing fanfare for the common man, spread out totally oh. in this huge space. Right. You know, when we did those runs, we were being tested every 48 hours. It was it was really before the vaccination was was viable, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it, it, it's been pretty crazy. We had something that almost resembled normal this summer in Vail. It was right in that mm -hmm. sweet spot before Delta had taken off. Right. And vaccines still seemed like they were effective and we were going to be able to go back to normal. Yeah. That felt very strange. I have to say, I actually felt pretty nervous my first time, like uh, being on stage um playing for a live audience, you know, going through the whole routine, something that never would have bothered me before. But because I haven't been in that mode, you forget. It reminded me of when I was in school, like, you know, you only play an orchestra concert once every, you know, two months or something like that. So everything right. feels very uncomfortable and unfamiliar. And, and it had certain mm -hmm. elements of that. It was very strange to feel that after all of these years and after how many thousands of concerts that I've played, you know, it's very strange. <laughs> Yeah. Kind of like being brand new all over again. It is. It is. I mean, it was it, it was wonderful, you know, especially after the first concert, everything sort of, you know, you get back in the groove. But, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's, it's so many times where you're just feeling that unfamiliarity, you know, all over again in ways that that 
I hadn't expected to experience, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of a interesting, different rush that you haven't had. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird to have it feel so unfamiliar. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about your injury. Now, you were in Atlanta when that happened. Mm-hmm. Was this something that happened over time or was it like an all of a sudden pop, I'm injured? I, it, I think it was a combination of both. Um, you know, looking back at when I was injured and my, my injury, the culmination of it was one of these things that actually happened in a concert. But I'll back up for a second. You know, if I look back at the way that I was scheduling things and the way that I was practicing and the way that I was kind of almost in a sense, like (laughs) looking back at it, I feel like it was more like I was punishing myself for not being good enough. You know, like it was really obsessive, not very healthy practicing, you know, like just trying to sort of force my body to do something to get somewhere and but not doing it in a very intelligent or very methodical kind of way. Just, you know, um, it was, you know, it's like beating yourself up. So, you know, tons and tons of practice, you know, four hours of practice on a concert day. That wasn't un- totally unusual for me during that wow. run up. I mean, it's totally stupid. Um, uh, and it was a sense like I was trying to really, you know, toughen my chops up to the point where I knew I could could carry such a heavy workload. Now, if I really look back to what was going on in my playing, I did start to notice some things before that. Like I noticed that I, st- I was starting to get a little bit more burrs and some of my articulations. I noticed that my soft playing was starting to be a little bit less focused and I just generally didn't feel like hundred percent right. Right. But unfortunately, instead of thinking my way through it, my answer was to just practice more, which right. I think sort of like, you know, put me into that, that sort of, uh, you know, downward spiral as it were. Um, when my injury happened, it was actually the first note of the catacombs movement of pictures and exhibition by Mazorski, the trombone sit out for a long time. And then all of a sudden you come in this, this very loud note. It's just a middle B natural, literally the B natural b- b- beneath middle C, you know, um, for trombones, this is literally not a high note at all. It is mm-hmm. right in the wheelhouse. It's like you, it's one of the first notes you learn how to play on the instrument. So you're not uh-huh. talking about like it was an extreme high or an extreme low. It was however, very loud. Um, and I do think that, that, there was a little bit of bad luck. I think when I took a breath, I didn't quite get myself set up in there. My embouchure wasn't really ready, but also it was it was quite exhausted. And I think that that sort of cumulative fatigue, um, that constant state of of not letting it recover, left me more susceptible to to having an injury like this. Um, and so when it happened, it was a really it was like a boom right away. It felt like someone took, um, I always describe it as like someone taking like a white hot needle and shoving it directly up into my lip. You know, it was immediate. It was, it was, it, it, it gave me like that tunnel vision. Like if you get hit in the head, you know, all of a sudden you get that little ringing of tunnel vision for a second. Yeah. Um, the note double buzzed into the most bizarre sound I've ever heard. You know, it was like Chewbacca through a feedback loop or something. It was very strange. I don't even know how to describe <laughs> the sound. Should, a brass instrument shouldn't be able to double buzz like that. And, and so it was very strange. And then, um, for the rest of the concert, I kind of got through it, but I was like, wow, I'm getting tired. I'm getting these double buzzes. I'm getting these shocks of pain. I, I didn't really know what was happening. And so I was like, oh, I'll just take like a day or two off and then everything will be fine. That's weird, you know? Um, but that pain, these sort of like zaps of pain, they just, whether I was playing loud or soft, high or low, um, they would just happen. It's seemingly random times. 
Um, and I noticed that I was getting fatigued much more easily. I couldn't keep my sound very as centered in the same way. But because I didn't know anything about these injuries, I kept going for about eight weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I just tried to fight my way through it. And at a certain point, I remember looking in the mirror and all of a sudden I was, had this realization that on the part of my lip that where I was experiencing this pain and the injury uh, had happened, you know, on, there was like a huge divot now in the, in the actual physical appearance of my lip. Oh. And that's when I knew it's like, okay, this is something way, way more serious than I'm giving it credit for. Um, and that really started down the journey of like, okay, I've got to figure this thing out. Um, and that's, I think, when I first reached out to uh, Cindy Lewis, um, who was the only person on the internet that I could find at that time who had, was talking about um, brass injuries. You know, the, the only other thing I could find, you know, was um, a, a doctor in Spain who was talking about Satchmo syndrome, like from Louis Armstrong, mm -hmm. because there was some talk that he had one of these injuries. And so this guy in Spain had diagnosed someone there and he sort of borrowed, uh, you know, uh, Louis Armstrong's nickname at the time mm -hmm. and used it as Satchmo syndrome. But I mean, obviously we've grown a lot since then in terms of understanding the physiology and, and what's going on with that. Mm -hmm. So that, that began a very long journey of trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. Now that's really interesting. And I think it's very common for musicians to have these overuse injuries and think, oh, well, I just need to practice through it. Like they don't, they don't think that rest is the, the key. They think, oh, I've got this deadline or I have this, I have to get this done. I'm just going to kind of barrel through that. Yeah. I think, I think one of the things that's very challenging for, for us as musicians is to try to understand when you have a cumulative level of fatigue that is becoming something that is putting you at risk for something that will require much more time to recover from, right. you know, because at a certain point, you know, one of the really annoying things about this particular injury, which, which which turned out to be a partial tear of the opicularis oris, which is, you know, your, your lip muscle um, mm -hmm. that we, you know, and for me, um, if you could sort of visualize, it was like right where the mouthpiece meets, uh, meets the lip. So for those of you who are sort of visualizing a trombone player, imagine that on the right hand side of that person's face, right underneath the mouthpiece, that's where this injury happened for me. Um, and that's also where the ensuing sort of physical um, <laughs> divot in my lip ended up manifesting itself in about two months afterwards when all of the um, muscle tissue that had torn had kind of uh, atrophied and, and sort of collapsed in a little bit. Wow. Um, the thing is, is like once you get to that point where you're injured, things do change because there is a certain thing that you, you have to practice through your injury after you are out of the danger zone. You know, right. for me, the pain... Uh, and sort of like background discomfort of this injury lasted for like eight years. I mean, so oh, did it really? Yeah. I mean, it was a long time. And even today, I can notice a little thing here or there, that kind of thing. But I mean, gosh, this is, you know, 12 years ago now. Um, mm -hmm. And it certainly didn't keep me from being able to pursue very lofty goals in, in my career. Um you know, but it did require me to manage my chops in a very different kind of way when after after it had happened. And a way that's much less interesting than just normal practice, you know, and is much more sort of like yeah, working on specific physiological things. And so I think for us as working musicians to be able to try to understand what those warning signs are of your cumulative fatigue and to then be able to scale down and do more sort of holistic exercise or just literally take a little bit of time away, you know, like just 
you're not going to lose all of that strength and facility that you've built up just because you turn the temperature down for a week or two to allow for some recovery before you turn it back up. I think everything mm -hmm. has to go in waves. Um, and for me, it, it just wasn't, it was always like turned up to 11, no matter what, you know, so that's not a healthy way to pursue any kind of musical career, I think. Right, right. Now, being an orchestral musician, is there room in the schedule for someone to be able to take some time off? Like, would you be able to go to your, you know, your principal? Well, I guess you were the principal at the time and say, hey, I need a week or two off. I can see that something's happening here. In most orchestras, you do have sort of medical leave things and you do mm -hmm. also have um, uh, the associate and assistant uh, principals that should be able to fulfill those kinds of roles, you know. So in an orchestra, one of the reasons you carry those extra personnel even though you don't necessarily need them for every piece of every concert is to actually enable that kind of rotation to happen. You know, so if you're at the point where things are getting really fried out, then if you have a good relationship with your colleagues, then the, the right thing to do would be like, listen, um, <clears throat> is it possible? You know, I've got something going on. Um, can we rearrange the schedule such that I can just get a little bit of relief in here? Um, mm -hmm. That's something that I think can't always happen, unfortunately, just because people are people and some relationships aren't very, um, uh, workable, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. you know, but yeah. in an ideal world, that that's sort of how you would go. Now, you know, the, I think the one thing that's very interesting for, uh, you, I think you see it happen more in the string world that they are more open about their injuries. And, you know, because there's been more study about this kind of repetitive right. uh, use injuries that they're able to get, if they need a medical leave for a week or two, I think it's easier for them to, to do that. Okay. Now, I don't know. That's totally anecdotal. I'm sure there are string players out there who are going to call me on that and say that it's not true. <laughs> I hope it's the case, you know. Um, it seems like less well understood in the brass world, you know, okay. so, um, it used to be that if you used to say your chops are, are, are messed up or something like that, people would, you know, it was kind of like, what do they say in golf when, when you have the yips where <laughs> you can't do putting anymore and no one wants to be around you, you know, it becomes very strange. I, I feel like we're trying to break through that idea. Well, like it's contagious or something. Yeah, exactly. Like people yeah. just don't want to be around there. Oh no, I don't want to think about it because it'll mess me up. Oh um, Yeah. Yeah. So so I think that that in the orchestral world, we're becoming more sort of attuned to that kind of stuff. And so people are if they need a little bit of relief or they need to use some relief services or something like that, then then they can. We've all done that a little bit in in our own section. And sometimes it's just, you know, sometimes it's a chop thing. But more often than not, it's 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 another more holistic kind of thing where people realize, listen, I just need to ramp down for a week, you know. And so yours got to a point where it was a year really before you could really start playing again. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, a year away from the orchestra. Yeah. Um, I did like a couple of like tests. I tried to come back like in January, uh, but it just, it absolutely did. It was a total fail. So when I, when I really think about like how long I was gone before I was back to playing full, like real concerts again, it was more like October to October. I had a couple of like test re-entries where I was like playing less than half the piece and, you know, had an assistant and, or something wow. like that. But those weren't what I would call like really recovered kinds of things. They were so heavily assisted as to not really count. It took mm -hmm. a, quite some time to to work my way back to be able to to play on stage. And during that time, you know, that was when I started going to see a doctor up in Toronto, who's uh, the only doctor I could find at the time who was specializing in some of these brass injuries. He gave me the diagnosis of the partial tear. He prescribed some uh, sort of like calisthenics, more or less, for for my chops. 
you know, um, and then after doing that for about four months, he had me come back after eight weeks and then another four weeks and then another four weeks. Uh, at the end of that time, he said, well, you know, this didn't heal as well as I would like, you know, you might as well start trying to play again at this point, you know, but it's probably not going to work. So when you need surgery, you can come back to me. Oh, and I was, I was crushed, you know, at that point, because I had yeah. seen what some of the surgical outcomes were for, for this. And, and very oh. few people had totally successful surgical outcomes. Um, most people tended to, to, to go on to something else or they persevered, but speaking with them, it was an incredibly painful and frustrating path. And so I was really just heartbroken at that point. Right. But I also determined that I just, I did not want to have surgery because I thought, you know, it's too, uh, it's too unpredictable. You know, any surgery, even a perfect surgery has unpredictable outcomes, Uh, especially when you're talking about soft tissue, like your lip. So at that point I was like, all right, I need to, first of all, find another, see if there's anyone who can give me a second opinion, but also uh, how can I, how can I put my chops back together? And this is sort of where I ended up finding um, Lori Frank very soon there after that. And also uh, another doctor who I believe actually recently retired, Dr. Craig Vanderkolk. Yeah. Lori was, was like completely instrumental in, in helping me to start to understand how to bring myself out of this injury condition. She was a trumpet player. She was a, a, a master of the, the Crusoe method, you know, and Carmine Crusoe was someone who developed a, a method for like winds of brass players, uh, specifically who had, um, you know, sort of dystonia like uh, symptoms or had actual injuries and helped them to, in a very tailor made kind of way, find their way back out of the abyss. And mm-hmm. she was an absolute master of this. And so by the time I found her, she was doing primarily work with injured players, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I went up to, to play for her and I was of course like incredibly nervous. Cause it's like, this, this feels like it's a pronouncement on like, am I going to be able to come out of this thing? Yeah. And she was, uh, she was, um, I don't know how to describe it. It, it, it felt a little bit like, um, very much like a, a, a grandmother kind of thing. She, she was very welcoming, very calming, you yeah. know, come in, play mm-hmm. just a little bit. And the first thing she had me do is just, can you just play mm-hmm. a soft, slow, two octave B flat major scale. I don't care what happens. Just, just play and let's talk. So I just sort of did one of these things. It's like the most nervous I've ever been to play a B flat major scale, you know, and just as soft as I can, you know, like, <laughs> like going through there, and I go up to the top and I come back down again. And she sort of leans over. She's like, all right, you are going to be fine. Let me tell you why you're going to be okay. Oh. That the people who, really have uh, catastrophic injuries, cannot play soft. They can't play over that kind of range. They require a, a much slower path to recovery. She's like, where mm-hmm. you are, I understand that you're injured. I understand what you're going through. But the fact that you can do this says that even though you're going to probably have times of trouble ahead, that you will be able to recover. Now let's talk about how you do that. And it was one of these things where like, got a little emotional even thinking about it here. You know, I just kind of wanted to cry because I, of course, you know, because I trusted her because I knew how many people she had sort of walked down this path and how many people she had seen. Uh-huh. Um, and we talked a lot about like what my practice was going to be like. And we put this whole routine together for how to slowly but surely kind of bring a new uh, way of engaging the chops together, how to monitor things for um, 
when you get injured with the brass player, you can have all kinds of other kinds of things where when you take a breath, you could do weird things with your chops. You could, you know, have like your head tilt. You can have your shoulders come up. Your body starts mm-hmm. doing all kinds of strange things to, to compensate for these injuries. So how to monitor for that, how to become much more aware of the aperture and the buzz inside the mouthpiece um, and, and a, a whole methodology about how to go about doing that. Between that and some other things that I'd learned from Cindy Lewis, those became sort of the foundation of my practice over the next, you know, six months or so before I started my very slow, gentle reintroduction to, to orchestral life in Atlanta. That must have been such a roller coaster. You have one doctor saying, eh, like you're done. And then to go through all of that and then have someone say, no, you're going to be fine. That must have been just like a flashlight in a dark cave. It, it really was. And, and on top of that, the next doctor that I, that I saw, you know, very soon after seeing Lori, basically almost, <laughs> strangely enough, almost said the exact same thing. He's like, listen, I can feel right here where the tear is. He's like, but I think that there is enough surviving muscle tissue that you're going to be able to do what you do. He's like, can you still make a sound on your instrument? You know, if you could still make uh, a sound, you know, and that it, it, it seems to work, then you're going to be able to recover. He's like, it won't be pain-free. You're going to have some issues along the way, but over in the long haul, there's no physiological reason why you can't, you know, come back from, from this injury. Um, and that was confirmed by another doctor in Atlanta, actually Keith Jeffords, the oral and plastic surgeon, uh, gosh, she's up in sort of, uh, Cobb County area. Last, last I checked anyway, that's where his practice was. Um, and so I had a few doctors and Lori, uh, basically all on the same page. And that sort of gave me some confidence that I could move forward, um, from this injury and have some hope of getting myself out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that hope is one of the main components to recovery after an injury. And mm-hmm. then, you know, you said that you're always up dialed up to an 11 when it comes to practicing. Did you ever feel um, the temptation to overdo those exercises or were you really, really good at sticking to the regimen that you needed to? I, I, I started using timers for my practice. Oh, did in- you? Yeah, because I didn't trust myself to not just go into that sort of obsessive mode again. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, especially early on, you know, I would put on like a 15 minute timer and that would be that, you know, and it was painful because it's like, oh, my God, this is 15 minutes, you know, but I would start there and I slowly kind of work my way up. And eventually for the, for a very long time, none of my practice sessions were longer than 40 minutes. And I actually still think that's a pretty generally OK rule for like a real practice session. Mm-hmm. You know, is it doesn't have to be two hours long, you know, that you can actually get a lot done with, you know, 40 minutes on 20 minutes off or 30 and 30, you know, something like that and, and still mm-hmm. not lose your strength and not lose your facility. Um, with kids, I've had to break that rule a bit. <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's like, okay, I've got this hour and a half. I'm going to make this work. And I sort of right. like, you know, um, even when I'm doing that, I'm much more mindful of what I'm practicing in that time period and mm-hmm. how to pace that practice session, even though it's not ideal. But even with that, you know, I very recently went through a period where we just had the the International Trombone Festival um, where I was doing a ton of stuff, recitals, the section was playing, I was doing a, like a, just a bunch of stuff. It was so much music. I really wanted it to be great. Um, and I was, I was trying to meter my practice, but I still, I still overdid it a little bit. And so even though it wasn't terrible, I was at that ITF and there were some moments it's like, ah, I'm tired and I shouldn't be. And it's because I'm, I overdid it and I've yeah. left myself in the state of fatigue. So it's amazing. Yeah. Even after all of this time, that I still have to be more conscientious and I still have to, I can never totally trust myself to just 
not do it. I have to time myself. And this was a good reminder of yeah. that even this last thing. So the, the work continues no matter what, no matter right. where you are in the process, I think. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting, especially in this time of world history that we're in, we're so used to quick fixes and we're so used to, oh, well, here's a medicine for that, or here's a treatment for that. But our bodies, they take the amount of time that they take. And we have to be so, so patient in like getting that recovery and listening to our bodies or else we just, you know, put ourselves back so many steps in our recovery. Absolutely. You do want it to just practice your way out of it. You know, you want that quick fix. You want to be like, okay, if I just spend another hour on this today, it's going to be fine. But as you say, the body doesn't care about our modern schedule. It doesn't care about the modern mindset. It needs what it needs. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very difficult for us to have the patience to listen to that in, mm -hmm. in the environment, you know? The second half of this is is mental awareness and mental health in musicians. And you have an album called Ash that embraces the crisis between injury and identity. And I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, that that album was kind of, to me, it was really important to do personally, you know, mm -hmm. because it embodied like the results of all of that struggle. You know, I wanted to have something that was music that I loved, music that I had always wanted to play. It was music that I participated in bringing forth into the world through commissions. This is all related to my injury. So for instance, the last piece on the album, uh, Colors by Bert Appermont, is a piece that I, I loved. And I, I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, this is a beautiful piece. I should play it someday. you know. And then uh, a year or two after that, I got injured. And I remember I heard a recording of it, you know, on YouTube um, one night when I was really feeling down on myself and I was just listening to all this trombone playing on YouTube, even though I couldn't play. Um, yeah. And I was like, you know, if I ever get my chops back, I want to do this piece. I really enjoy it. I love I love the tunes. It's exciting. And it's something that I kept meaning to do and never did. And if I get my face back, I'm going to do something with that. You know, the album's title, Ash, is a piece that um, I had one of my uh, commissioned one of my friends, Michael Martin, to write for me that really explores, you know, the whole journey of this thing for me. You know, so the first movement is, is slow march, you know, is this idea of what does it feel like to be in that a completely interminable feeling of like, is this ever going to end? What's the phrase that the that, that days are long, but years are short? You know, it's uh, mm -hmm. when you're in the middle of this injury every hour, every minute seems like it is just interminable. You know, it is, it's part of that. I think that depression, part of that anxiety feel like all of these things that are just, you know, you're, you're questioning about what are, what is your, what is your purpose? Who are you? You know, this, and it Absolutely. is, it is a feeling that is, is hard to describe. And I love that movement because to me, it really captures it. It is this, it's, it's very slow. It's, there's a little bit of like, you know, this little bit of anguish in it. it, it just really captures that. And then the second movement of it is the don't look down is this anxiety feeling. It's this fully frenetic kind of thing. It's all over the place. It's actually it's really hard. He wrote his crazy flicks in it. Um, but it, again, sort of captures that, that feeling of just like, you know, the, it's, it's, 
the other side of that depressive state was the absolutely unrelenting anxiety that existed during that time, the kind of anxiety that kept me from sleeping, the kind of thing where at the same time that I feel that I couldn't get up off the couch, my brain is running a million miles an hour with all of this, uh, you know, questioning whether or not I'm going to be able to, to move forward with my life. And what does that even look like? You know, it was absolutely brutal. So those two movements right there. And then the last one horizon sort of represents this sort of like afterwards, the fact you get through all of that and there is something that is, that is hopeful. It's unfinished. He doesn't end on like a normal, like, you know, just like, you know, an old major chord, you know, it's like a six chord or something like that. Cause it's not really finished. It's, it's, it's hopeful. It's moving forward, but it's not totally done. Right. Some of the other music that's on there too. This is the Mahler Fantasy by uh, by uh, Alexander Bonus. It was a piece that I had written for me right before I got injured, and always okay. wanted to play it, but couldn't. You know, because I just couldn't get my chops together. And that's another one. It's all weird and strange and dark and frenetic, and yeah, you know, it's it's kind of all over the place. So so this album really was was my way of trying to mentally, in a sense, and emotionally, kind of process everything that I had gone through. You know, and it mm-hmm. felt like even if I never recorded another album that I needed to do this for myself as an artist and just as a human being to process the weight of, you know, eight years of, of tumult, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, it's absolutely wonderful. It's especially that Ash piece, um, the don't look down, especially. I loved that one. (laughs) The way the piano just is like, you know, all it's just like this going into this pit and the trombone's like, no, 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 no. I don't want to go in the pit. I I just love, I love it. And I was like, this may be one of the best musical representations of that feeling that I have ever heard. Yeah. It's just perfect. And the way that you played it, I'm like, oh, yeah, he knows. Mm-hmm. He knows what this is all about. Yeah. I mean, it, it is it is hard. I mean, that's the part that we, we talk a lot about the physical side of things, you know, um, in in the business in terms of how to recover from it. But I think the thing that is that we're starting to come around to in the industry and just I think maybe in society in general, I don't know, is the idea that the physical part is not enough. You can be 100 percent physically recovered. But if you're if you don't engage with the mental part of it, everyone who goes through an injury that I know, you know, who is a dedicated musician, who we've dedicated our lives to the craft, you know, and to to being a musician and to all of the catharsis and emotions and sort of um, attachment that it brings to lose that is literally like losing a part of yourself that you you can't replace. Right. And for me, you know, the, the, the depression and anxiety that went along with that were inescapable and had to be dealt with in ways that I hadn't tried to face some of those things before. 
you know, because they had never manifested so strongly. I was never someone who I felt like was prone to anxiety. And yet the anxiety part of it may have been worse than sort of the depressive part of it for me. Right. The anxiety was so unrelenting and so unforgiving. Um, that was very, very difficult. So I had to learn a lot about mm -hmm. myself and, you know, ways to get through it, you know, to how to build a, a support system for yourself, uh, not only a, you know, finding the right people to go through, whether it's doctors or like, like a physical therapist, that kind of thing, but also to find like a good mental health support system, you know, to find like a, a, a therapist or a, a, some other way to, to have someone help you through these emotional pitfalls of, of the injury, because I feel like in order to get back on stage and to actually have any enjoyment of what you did before, you can't do it if you're still carrying around all of that anxiety and all of that depression. And I noticed that pretty early on in my time back too, that I, even when I came back and was physically able to uh, play, there were times that I would get done with the concert and I'd be driving home and I'd have to pull over and I just have to like settle myself down because the, the, the absolute like fear and, 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 um, uh, almost shame of, of, of how I felt that I sounded at that time would manifest so strongly. I couldn't really feel like I could drive. So I had to like pull over, settle myself down and then, you know, continue my way back oh. home. And it's like, okay, I, I have, even now that I'm playing again, I have a whole lot of work to do to really heal from this whole experience. And so I think that we as musicians, whether or not you go through one of these kinds of, of physical injuries, one of the things mm -hmm. we very often don't do is we don't take care of our mental health in our industry as well. And I think that manifests in all kinds of ways, you know, and I think it's something that I, I, I wish that we were more aware of when we were younger and we took more seriously through our careers and development. Mm -hmm. And I know you do a lot of teaching, you do master classes, and you and you do festivals. Um, does that experience kind of shape how you approach speaking to young musicians or advice that you give to them? Yes, you can tell sometimes because you know, being a student uh, for what we do is tough. It's really tough. It's really tough. Yeah. You know? um, and you can tell, you know, especially if you've been through it, you can sort of tell when someone is having a hard time. So there are times and lessons where I'll, you know, we'll stop and be like, listen, you know, you know, if you're feeling really down, if you're feeling like this is something, something that's keeping you from being able to practice, you know, that you, you start by trying to seek out some health. I always recommend that they go speak to the, um, uh, whatever the proper department is at the school that they're at, you know? Um, mm -hmm. so, so, um, you know, mental health services at Manhattan school of music, if it was at MSM where I teach, if I was to recommend that to someone there, you know, but just in general, I, I think it's really important that people start by being willing to, to reach out to someone who is qualified to help them in that professional sense. I'm not going to be someone who is qualified to help them. And I, I don't think I would be responsible to try to take on that burden. I can share my experiences, but that mm -hmm. is not in and of itself enough, you know? And I think that Mm -hmm. It's important for students to hear that your teachers, uh, me being one of them, you know, we all want to help you, but I don't know that that we are enough. And so if you're at that point, you know, your teacher can provide an incredible amount of support for you. They can provide a, a good sounding board. They can help you through a lot of things. But but in the same way that we as teachers and musicians are highly specialized and highly qualified in what we do that's where like a therapist or a performance coach or a life coach or something like that is equally qualified in that specialty. And right. it would really, I think it's best to, to 
make sure that if you're really feeling down that you go in and you find those people who can help you to find ways to cope with those kinds of feelings. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, outside of the, the, you know, like that very specific sort of general mental health, I think we all need to do a, a better job of, of studying um, like sort of performance psychology. Mm-hmm. Because we have to take auditions. Right. Auditions suck. <laughs> There's no way around <laughs> it. I, I still don't like them. I'll never like them. I've kind of figured out how to do some things in some auditions. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of it was very hit or miss until I started learning a little bit more about Don Green. That was the the go-to person in, in my day. I think there are more people out there now. And so I would really encourage, you know, um, whether that's like Bulletproof Musician or uh, I think Jason Haheim and, uh, has a... a the timpanist at the Met, he has a very methodical uh, blog where he talks a lot about how he put his practice together. This is someone who, mm-hmm. who was trained and was a scientist first and then became the principal timpanist of the Met. So it's like, oh my God, oh, wow. this guy has an incredible way of looking at things. Um, oh, wow. That element of, of what we do, the performance psychology is also something that, that I would encourage every student. And really, if you're th- planning on taking auditions or you just want to live in the orchestral career and you just started feeling little bit uncomfortable or you're not as confident as you want to be on stage sometimes things creep into our lives that we're just not really aware of and uh you know uh this performance psychology can help be uh, give you some specific tools to deal with the stuff on stage and so there's really the whole thing of uh, you have to you have to take care of your 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 physical health on the instrument but you also have to be really aware of your overall mental health. And then you need some very specific you know, tools to deal with the mental game of taking an audition or performing in a high pressure situation. So there's like these, it feels like there's these three facets to what we have to deal with and to be able to un- unlock the maximum potential that we can of ourselves. Yeah, that's wonderful. Just as a final question for you, you've been through all of this. You've, you've had that long journey. You've had the ups and downs of your career. If you could go back and choose another career, would you or would you have done this all over again? Would you stay a musician if you knew back when you were young what you know now? You know, it's, it's funny because someone just asked me this, it was, uh, you know, would you consider doing this, uh, you know, X job or whatever it was? And, yeah. you know, my, my answer is still the same, that, that I am <laughs> I am wholly, completely, thoroughly addicted to being a musician when i am in a performance now that is great there is still something that is transcendent about it to me it is something that 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 moves me so deeply that that i cannot imagine walking away from it that Mm -hmm. it is it is a part of of who i am and what i need to do to feel that i am contributing to making this world a better place, even in a small way. And that kind of feeling, the fact that I still have it, you know, leads me to believe that I don't think I could do anything else different. You know, right. that I had, I had choices, I had options, but this was always something that for whatever reason I need in order to, you know, be who I am, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think that 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 was the hardest thing about the whole experience of injury to want something and to love it so much and then to have it taken away mm-hmm. and then to have to find your way back to it. You know, uh, in a lot of ways, I'm thankful for the journey because mm-hmm. I think it has made me appreciate being a musician much more than I did before. Right. I think it's made me a better teacher. It's made me a more empathetic person in general. And overall, I think it helps me 
when I do lose track of what's important, it does have that thing to help bring me back and keep me grounded. So yeah, if I could do it all over again, even going through what I had to go through, I would, I would still do it because I just love it that much. That is wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here. Congratulations on your whole journey of everything that you've been through. I am so happy for you and happy that you're um, playing music and you get to do what you love. So Colin Williams, thank you so much for being here and bringing awareness to this very, very important topic. Thank you so much for having me. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. A very special thank you to Colin Williams for sharing his story with us, as well as his insights, advice, and his music. Throughout today's episode, you heard excerpts from Colin's album, Ash. Pieces included Colors by Bert Appermont, Movements 2 and 3, and Ash, composed by Michael Martin, Movements 1, 2, and 3. All pieces were performed by Colin Williams and Hanako Yamagata. I will have links to Colin's album, as well as his website and many other resources dealing with physical and mental health for musicians, in our show notes on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. And if you want to help us reach more people that may be interested in today's topic, please share this episode with them or leave us a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any topics you'd like to be discussed or questions about music or musician life that you'd like answered, please be sure to reach out to us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at frostedlens.com.